innovation, integrity, teamwork, commitment, compassion, and respect. These are the values of Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center. Here's another episode in our podcast series, Cancer Talk with Bill Klaproth. The holidays can be a tough time for many, but for people with cancer, it can be especially difficult. And here to talk with us about cancer and the holidays is Dr. Megan Paler, psychologist, Department of Psychosocial Oncology at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center. Dr. Paler, thank you so much for your time. So the holidays, those can be really tough, especially for someone diagnosed with cancer. Can you share some tips on how someone should best manage this? Thanks for having me. The holidays, I think, for for anybody can be a stressful time just because uh, we try to do so much and try to um, uh, have so many different experiences. And I think um, cancer with the combination of uh, worry, of new treatments, of physical symptoms, um, it can add a whole whole other layer on top of uh, what is normally um, oftentimes a stressful time. I think one of the biggest pieces of advice that I would have um, for folks who are struggling with cancer during the holidays is just to have some compassion for yourself, to acknowledge that uh, things, things may be different now than they were, and that can mean a lot of different things. I think you may have physical limitations as far as what you can do. Um, a lot of cancer patients going through treatment have significant fatigue symptoms, so your energy is really pretty limited. Um, People may be struggling financially in ways that they weren't before the before the cancer. So, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of different changes that people going through cancer can experience. So, I think uh, one big piece of advice is just to acknowledge that, acknowledge that that uh, that things are different, um, and then to also avoid the tendency to um, set unreasonable expectations for yourself. You know, I can get this done, or because I've always done this, I should be able to keep doing this, or if I can't do every single thing that I used to be able to do, that that somehow I will have failed. Um, so it's, I think, just the idea of trying to set expectations for yourself that are a little bit, um, that are more reasonable given the circumstances. Well, that makes uh, total sense. Have compassion for yourself and then set reasonable expectations. Should you share that with other people, too, ahead of time? Should you say, uh, you know, I know you know what I'm going through, and I'm just going to have to lay low this year. I'm not going to be able to cook for everybody. I'm not going to be able to shop, and I'm not going to be able to be superwoman. I just want to let you know ahead of time. Is it best to share that with the people that are close to you? I think so, yes. And I also think that people, um, people that are close to you are, are looking for ways to help. Um, and so I think one of the best things, too, is as you're trying to achieve this, this sort of balance between, um, you know, I think it's important to still do the things that are meaningful, you know, the most important traditions. You know, I think it's good to be able to hold on to those um, as much as possible. And that's where other people can really be helpful. So, for example, if your tradition is baking, um, you know, tons and tons of Christmas cookies. You know, you may not be up for doing that this year, but you could have your family members bake batches of Christmas cookies and you could sit in the kitchen while they're doing that so that you can continue to be a part of the, the tradition. Or if hosting is something that's important to you, but you're not feeling up for that, then that's where the family members could come in to help, you know, to provide some of the setup or the cleanup or things like that. So sharing what you what you can and can't do with family members, I think is very important. 
And is there a way to prepare then, say you are going to parties and celebrations, because we all know those happen, how should you prepare to approach those? Well, I think um, that it depends on a lot of things. I think what I tell a lot of people is pick and choose. Pick and choose the celebrations that are most important. Obviously, if you're uh, white blood cells are low, or if you have restrictions on your activities, first and foremost, be safe and follow the, the restrictions that you need to follow. But if you are given permission um, to, to go out and be a part of those celebrations, one thing I often advise people to do is to have an escape plan um, so that if you're feeling not quite up for it, that there's a way that you could um, either leave early or go to a quiet room or something like that so that you don't put the expectation for yourself of being present at an event for hours and hours and hours when you may not be up for that. So you may plan to come late. You may plan to go with somebody who you can give a signal to, you know, to leave a little bit early so that you can simultaneously participate in the outing or the, um, the festivities, but in a way that is a little bit more manageable. Have an escape plan. I love yes. it. <laughs> so, Dr. Paler, for someone that is down in the dumps, someone that has a cancer diagnosis or is going through treatment and is just down, how do we deal with that? Do we try and cheer them up? Do we just listen and, and just be with them and offer quiet support? What's the best way to, to handle that? Well, I think, you know, I think that it depends on, on the circumstances for sure, but I think being able to acknowledge with somebody that um, that this year is different, that things are hard, to be able to give person, the person permission to feel sad about it, I think that's important because I think so often I see people and their family members that are working so hard to keep the positive face on for the other person. You know, I, I can't let myself... Uh, be sad. This is the holidays. I should, you know, that, that dreaded should word, I should be feeling happy and joyous. And then the contrast between how I feel and how I should be feeling, you know, that, that, that can be upsetting. So I think it is, it's absolutely important to, um, Ask someone how they're doing. Give, it, give them the opportunity to talk about the fact that this is hard without feeling the obligation to um, immediately cheer up. I think usually when people are able to talk about it and to be heard, then, um, then it may be easier to, you know, to do the more positive things. But without acknowledging it and, um, and being able to share that, I think that can be challenging. So give the person permission to feel sad. I think that's really good advice. And... For friends and family who want to help, you talked about earlier helping out with certain activities. Are there other ways that friends and family can lend a helping hand during the holidays? Um, I think uh, one piece of advice would be uh, for friends and families to offer specific things. Because a lot of times people are reluctant to accept help because they feel like they don't want to burden somebody or that it would be an obligation. But if a friend is offering a specific um, piece of help, you know, would you like me to pick that up for you? I'll be at the store. I'd be happy to do thus and such. I think it can be a lot easier to accept that help if it's um, if, if very specific, uh, you know, help is offered. Um, I think otherwise, another piece of advice would be to continue to make efforts to include your friend if your friend is going through cancer. Continue to extend the invitations and then allow that person to decide what they are or aren't up for. But just the idea that you're thinking of them, that you're continuing to include them, 
um, and then allowing that person to, um, you know, to really make the call as to how they feel and if they feel up for participating, even being, um, being reached out to, for lack of a better term, I think is, is helpful. Well, that makes sense. Offer help for specific things and continue to include them in the plans and then let them accept or decline as, uh, you know, they can monitor how they're feeling at the moment. And Dr. Paler, how can Roswell Park Cancer Institute help? Well, we have a lot of different um, different uh, avenues for support. Uh, we do have some general um both for cancer patients and for caregivers of cancer patients. We have support groups that sometimes people um, appreciate feedback from other people. Um, For a list of support groups, you can dial the psychosocial oncology number, which is 845-8022, or also check the website. We also have um, uh, people such as myself, psychologists and clinical social workers, who meet with patients and families individually, because I think that that's the other thing, the other piece here is that sometimes these, you know, the feelings of sadness um, are overwhelming. And I think that the final piece of advice is um, if you're feeling as though you need support, by all means, reach out. And like you said earlier, people do want to help. <laughs> that's right. And that's right. I think a lot of times people, uh, families and loved ones um, are, are very eager to help, but they just don't exactly know how. Right. That's that's uh, very true. And they want to help. So if you um, can specifically tell them, hey, here's what I need, they are there to help you and they want to support you. So that's great advice. And also, it doesn't people think it's a burden, uh, a burden to if you ask for help. But in many in many cases, people appreciate knowing what to do because family members can feel helpless as well. And they enjoy being given tasks to do (laughs) as a way of contributing. So you're making each of the parties feel better at that point. Right. The holidays can be a tough time for many, but for people with cancer, it can be especially difficult. And here to talk with us about cancer and the holidays is Dr. Megan Paler, psychologist, Department of Psychosocial Oncology at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center. Dr. Paler, thank you so much for your time. So the holidays, those can be really tough, especially for someone diagnosed with cancer. Can you share some tips on how someone should best manage this? Here to talk with us about the risks of ovarian cysts is Dr. Peter Frederick, Director of Minimally Invasive Surgery and the Department of Gynecologic Oncology at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center. Dr. Frederick, thank you for your time. So what are the different types of ovarian cysts? Well, there's a lot of different kinds of ovarian cysts, um, and I think the most common kind of ovarian cyst is what we term a functional cyst. Uh, which often occurs in women that are premenopausal, uh, so women that are still having their menstrual periods. And um, other kinds of cysts that we see are uh, can include dermoid cysts, uh, which um, are sometimes made up of different cell lines that can have bones and teeth and hair in them. There's um, cysts that are associated with certain hormonal conditions, um, like polycystic ovarian syndrome, and uh, other cysts that are associated with conditions uh, like endometriosis. These are called endometriomas. So how do these cysts develop? Well, 
it really depends on the kind of cyst that we're talking about. Um, certain cysts are uh, mediated by hormones. Uh, so as hormones fluctuate during the menstrual cycle, uh, some cysts can uh, form as a result of that during uh, ovulation. And if there's not a reabsorption of the cyst, um, that can that can occur. Um, you know, when we talk about polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, these are multiple small cysts that will occur uh, usually um, in uh, combination with with other uh, hormonal conditions, um, such as um, high higher androgens, androgen levels, and um, and metabolic resistance. Uh, with endometriosis, sometimes there's some tissue from the uterus inside the ovary. Uh, every time a menstrual period occurs, there's a little bit of bleeding that occurs inside the ovary where these glands are located, and then that can cause the cyst to form over time. So it's a complicated answer depending on what cyst you're talking about. Right. And do ovarian cysts pose any fertility or pregnancy risks? Um, no, not usually. Um, most women that have cysts don't even know that they have them. Um, when we're talking about pregnancy, a lot of women are getting ultrasounds now uh, to look at the pregnancy. And so sometimes cysts are identified incidentally. Uh, whereas, you know, in the old days when we weren't getting routine ultrasounds, they were probably there. We just didn't know about it. Um, some of those conditions I did talk about, like endometriosis and polycystic ovarian disease, can um, increase the risk of having fertility. Um, but just because a woman has endometriosis or PCOS doesn't mean she'd necessarily be infertile. So there are no symptoms of these? Um, in some cases, uh, there can be symptoms. So if a cyst becomes a certain size, uh, it can result in pain. Um, sometimes that's you know pelvic discomfort. Um, sometimes it can be abdominal pain if a cyst gets uh, really large and grows outside of the pelvis. Um, and if the cyst is putting pressure on other structures in the pelvis, there can be GI symptoms um, or urinary symptoms as well. So is pain the main reason they get discovered, or is it through routine ultrasounds? Yeah, I would think, I would think pain uh, would be the main presenting symptom for the majority of women. Uh, sometimes if a woman is going to the physician uh, for a regular uh, gynecologic exam, uh, they can be um, discovered on exam by the healthcare provider, um, and then sometimes they'll get picked up on ultrasound as well. Mm -hmm. So do ovarian cysts pose any cancer risks? Not in themselves. Um, they haven't been shown to turn into cancer or anything of that nature. I think the challenge is that sometimes cancer can present as a mass on the ovary. And so for the healthcare provider, um, it's, it's a challenge to differentiate between a benign cyst and a potentially cancerous cyst. Uh, or a potentially cancerous growth, in other words. So um, cysts themselves don't cause cancer, but uh, sometimes it takes some experience and some some expertise to differentiate between what is a benign cyst and what is potentially cancerous. And Dr. Frederick, how are ovarian cysts generally treated? In the majority of cases, uh, no treatment is uh, required, especially if the cyst is asymptomatic. Um, if it's a functional cyst that causes, you know, some discomfort, uh, 
during the menstrual cycle. Um, NSAIDs like Motrin or ibuprofen can help with the discomfort. And um, if it's appropriate, sometimes oral contraceptive pills can be used to suppress ovulation and prevent other cysts from forming. Um, in extreme circumstances, if the cyst becomes really large or um, it's uncertain if there might be a cancer involved, surgery may be required to remove the cyst. Um, but certainly, uh, if there's a low uh, suspicion for cancer, uh, we, would see can- uh, we would see surgery as more of a last resort. So in most cases, uh, simple management is um, what's effective. Yeah, that's right. And uh, especially for, you know, simple functional cysts, the majority of them, about 80%, will resolve on their own without any kind of uh, surgical intervention. Uh, So sometimes we'll just follow them up with a repeat ultrasound in, you know, six to eight weeks just to confirm that they're not getting any bigger. And in 80% of the time, they'll, they'll go away on their own. So are there any other risks involved with ovarian cysts? Well, in some cases, um, if there's a cyst present, it can result in um, torsion, uh, which means the ovary will turn on its stalk, and and that can be uncomfortable uh, as the blood supply is uh, cut off to the ovary. And so if that's the case, uh, timely diagnosis and surgical intervention is is important to do. Um, If a cyst gets um, large, in some cases, it can rupture. And uh, that can also uh, cause some discomfort. So mm-hmm. I think it's important to educate our patients uh, to, you know, be mindful of those symptoms like pelvic pain and, um, you know, GI or uh, genital urinary issues. Um, and if they have those symptoms um, for a prolonged period of time to bring that to the attention of their healthcare provider. Or obviously, if it's pain that's really severe, you don't want to wait 12 days. You let your doctor know right away. Okay, that's good advice. And Dr. Frederick, can ovarian cysts be prevented? Um, I think the oral contraceptive pills can prevent ovarian uh, functional cysts from forming in the future. Um, Endometriosis can also be treated uh, with hormonal treatment. Um, Some cysts, like dermoid cysts, there's really no known prevention um, that we know of. Obviously, if a woman has surgery and her ovaries are removed, that would prevent cysts from forming in the future. But um, we would only do that if she's got a high risk of developing cancer or if she's very symptomatic from from the cyst that can't be managed in a non-surgical fashion. So generally, lifestyle doesn't cause these or promote these? No, it doesn't appear to. Obviously, we encourage healthy diet and exercise um, for all of our patients, um, but um, lifestyle practices uh, seem unrelated to cyst formation. And Dr. Frederick, is there anything I haven't asked you that we should know about ovarian cysts? There's a lot of different kinds of ovarian cysts, and there's a lot of other kinds of masses in the pelvic area um, that may not be cysts. And so, um, you know, if there's any uncertainty, uh, it's always good to communicate with your healthcare provider and don't be afraid to get a second opinion. Always good advice. And Dr. Frederick, thank you so much for your time today. For more information, visit roswellpark.org. That's roswellpark.org. You're listening to Cancer Talk with Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center. I'm Bill Klaproth. Thanks for listening.